Amen. You can be seated. And for the last couple of weeks, as a part of our Healthy Church series, we've been working through what it looks like to, to exhibit, to inhabit a gospel culture within our church. And I've made reference to a quote. We're going to start there with that quote again this morning, but I wanted to show you the book. It's called The Gospel, uh, and the tagline, The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ. And, and in it, Ray Ortland writes this. It's kind of been a, a, a marker for us and kind of a launching point for us in this last three weeks. It is not enough for us to ask, does our church teach gospel doctrine? We must also ask, is our church culture clearly aligned with that gospel doctrine? The gospel gives us more than a place to stand. It leads us to a path, or leads us into a path to follow. Gospel culture is just as sacred as gospel doctrine, and it must be carefully nurtured and preserved in our churches. Because I think the Bible demonstrates this to be true and right, not because Ray Ortland is writing it, but because the Bible demonstrates this to be true and right, we have been working that out over the last couple of weeks as we've dealt with what, what a gospel culture actually looks like. And we've been building traits for a gospel culture to, to, to measure ourselves in light of the Scripture from 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be there again today. If you've got a Bible, you're welcome to go ahead and turn there. In the opening verses of 1 Peter chapter 4, we built out two traits. We're going to do just a quick review. I'm not going to do any teaching really on these. We're just going to hit them and move on. I just want them to be in your minds so that, that as we work today, that this will be a foundation point. The first trait was defined by a Christ-like attitude. Simply to think like Christ, to perceive like Christ, to interact and react to things like Christ, to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. The second trait we saw in 1 Peter 4 was devoted to the pursuit of a Christ-like priority. That's everything in your life, everything about who you are and all of your resources, all of the, all of the pieces of your, yourself directed for God's will, living completely, being, being sold out on that one, uh, that one idea to live for God's will. Last week, we broke out that priority in four different ways. And I just promise you, I, I, I told people this last Wednesday when we did our covenant renewal. I'm not running out today. So the, the point that I hope that that made was that those priorities are important, that there is a higher priority here in this world than building our own kingdom. Than, than finding our own comfort. And those priorities, as we see them broken out by Peter, are prayer, loving one another, loving the brothers and sisters in Christ, hospitality for one another without grumbling about it, without complaining about it, and complaining about one another while we're doing it, and then gracious service of one another. Those, those two traits and those four priorities out of that second trait are so far what we've built out. Peter has called us to this, in light of gospel doctrine. He's called us to this. He's built this out in light of gospel teaching. He, he ends chapter 3 and begins chapter 4 with the understanding that Jesus Christ suffered for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. We are able to be in God's presence because what Jesus suffered for us. That is gospel doctrine. Doctrine doesn't end at his suffering, though. Doctrine, The gospel doctrine ends at the culmination of the work he started in his suffering. The end of all things is at hand, he says. There is a day coming when the work on the cross will culminate in the feast around his table. We will be able to be in his presence. What we see dimly today, we will see with our eyes. We will be able to touch with our hands. We will experience in our hearts 
That's the day we look forward to. That is gospel doctrine. And Peter builds out of that this, this whole understanding, these two traits, and so far, these four priorities. Giving ourselves fully to the mind of Christ, giving ourselves fully to the priority of Christ, and, and praying for one another, prioritizing one another in love and service and hospitality. Even if it means we have to reject others to do it, prioritizing the family of God. That's what he calls us to. And so, being that that is what gospel culture looks like, at least to this point, we've been asking ourselves some questions. We're going to ask those again today. Is the culture of your church, and if, if your church is this church, and if you're even thinking about this church being your church, you need to be asking this question. Is the, is the, is the culture in your church a gospel culture? Is it marked by these traits? Is it marked by these priorities? Is, it being, is, is do, gospel doctrine being taught and is gospel doctrine being lived? If it is, in the areas in which it is, you need to be thanking God for that. It is a miracle that any of us ever even get close to this. It's a miracle that, that any of us would set aside ourselves and, and, and serve one another. It's a miracle of God that we would truly love one another. That is not in our nature at all. If it is happening in a godly way, if we are living in obedience to God, then it's because... He is doing a work in us. So we need to be grateful for that. We need to be praising Him for that. But if it isn't, in all likelihood, regardless of where you go to church, even in this church, as much as I like to think it would be different and like to th say, well, this is a church I pastor, and so we're perfect. We got it all figured out. I know that's not true. I know it's not true in my own life. And so we need to be asking some more questions. What am I doing about helping to establish a gospel culture in my church. Not what does everybody else need to be doing, starting with yourself, what do I need to be doing to be a part of establishing a gospel culture in the church, in and among the people of God? What do I need to be doing? But more than that, as we talked about it last week, we've actually seen it both weeks, but we talked about it specifically last week. Not just what do I need to be doing, but what do I need to be believing see, a gospel culture is not going to be the result of all of our effort. It's going to be the result of our belief that leads us to effort. And I want to remind you of the equations that I put up the first week. We'll only really deal with the one that, that matters. Doctrine plus faith. Doctrine plus trust. Gospel doctrine plus trusting gospel doctrine equals gospel culture. If it is lacking in our church in any area, it is because we are lacking some faith in some solid, important, trustworthy gospel doctrine. If we are not prioritizing the church family, it's because we likely don't believe that the end of all things is at hand. We can do that tomorrow. And maybe that's not the only thing, but, but in some way we're, we're not believing something about the gospel. So we must, we must hear good teaching. We must have gospel doctrine to stand on. We must have gospel doctrine to have the instruction to follow, the instruction to know how to live, and then the faith to bind us to it. And the truth is, is that today, I think today, we're going to really need to rely on that faith as we add one final trait, what, what I believe Peter adds is one final trait to what it looks like to be the church in these dark days. To, to exhibit, to inhabit a gospel culture in the midst of a, a broken world. And this final trait is that we are determined 
to suffer, to determine to endure suffering to live like Christ. Determine to endure suffering to live like Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We have the priority of Christ. We have been called to prioritize the family of God in love and service and hospitality. And there's going to be a rub. There's going to be a difficulty. It's just the reality of the world we live in. Suffering is common to all of mankind. Suffering is common to everyone. But suffering for the sake of the gospel is distinctly Christ-like. It is a mark of a gospel culture. If we are not suffering, then in some way we are not believing the gospel. Well, don't take my word for it, right? I mean, I've talked a lot so far. Let's hear what God has to say through his apostle Peter. We're going to begin again, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 12, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Beloved, that's a comforting word, right? I mean, he's about to bring it, but that's a comforting word. It feels good. Beloved, you know... Do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Well, that changes tone. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Do not be surprised. But rejoice. Wow. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. I'm blessed. You are blessed because the spirit of glory, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Everyone suffers. It's a common thread in all of humanity. We all suffer. Suffering is the norm. It is so pervasive in our world that it has been used as an excuse to deny the existence of the God of the Bible. It's a major apologetic point that atheists try to bring. Well, suffering exists, so the God of the Bible obviously can't. It's a denial of the fact that God works in the midst of suffering. It's a denial that God used suffering to save us. It's a denial of the fact that, that, that our sin is responsible for our suffering and not God. It's a misunderstanding of the scheme of things in our position in the world. But Peter's calling us in light of the gospel, in light of the sufferings of Christ, in light of the end of all things being at hand, in light of the mind of Christ, in light of the priority of Christ, to take on a whole new view of suffering. He's calling us to, to deal with suffering differently than we might have before Christ. What's the, what's the normal way that the world deals with suffering? To run from it, to find ways to comfort them, find comfort and, and ease in the midst of it or, or in spite of it. He's calling us to suffer, not for what we've done wrong, but for what we've done right. 
He's calling us to suffer, not because we deserve it, although in the scheme of things we rightly do. But He's calling us to suffer even when we've done things that wouldn't deserve it. He is calling us to believe the Gospel so fully that instead of suffering for sinful things that Christians, that, 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 that sinful things that we could do, that Christians instead suffer for a lifestyle that honors God. He's, he's calling us to suffer for living like Christ. It's radically different than anything we've ever been told. It flies in the face of a prosperity gospel. But suffering, while it's common to all of mankind, suffering for the sake of the gospel is distinctly Christ-like. I just want to set the stage for you. What, what's going on as Peter's writing this letter? I mean, he's, you, you've heard it over and over again through the letter that he is dealing with suffering. He is calling people to find their hope in Christ because they are suffering. They've endured persecution really from the outset. Early on, the church was, they were, they were <clears throat> early on, they were kind of accepted. They were tolerated, I guess you might say, in Jerusalem. But as their influence grew and as, as it took hold and, and people and the, Druze, uh, the Jewish leaders began to see people go this way, they begin to try to snuff it out. They try to crush it. And they end up killing Stephen, which ends up sending, uh, starting a, a persecution in Jerusalem that basically sends the church either out of Jerusalem or underground. But uh, Luke, as he writes that book, as he tells us what happens in response to that, as they leave Jerusalem, they begin preaching the gospel everywhere they go. God's not thwarted. God's work is not undone. They have not lost, but the gospel is moving. And the gospel moves, and it, it, it then begins to invade and permeate the Roman Empire. The place where, where Caesar is Lord. The place where people worship their, their, their political leaders and, and gods and goddesses of, of every kind, these, these false and impotent, powerless gods. Christians aren't readily accepted there either while it takes root and it spreads like wildfire. They're not being readily accepted there. In fact, I mean, as, as Peter has let on, they are being reviled and they are being insulted. They're being accused. John MacArthur, in his comments on this passage, point out some of the perspectives that people held of Christians in that day. And let me just share that with you. They were connected, he writes, they were connected with Jews in the minds of most people who had been dispersed in the dysphoria. So the, the Jews that had already been dispersed, now, now Christians come along and they, they are being equated with Jews. And since there was a rather growing anti-Semitism, it was easy to have an anti-Christian attitude as well. The Lord's Supper, which Christians held, was closed to pagans, and so that sort of developed all kinds of strange imaginations about what happened. They heard about these Christians who were eating flesh and drinking blood and accused them of cannibalism. In fact, they began to say that they ate babies and Gentiles at the Lord's Supper. So we're going to observe that today after service. And you can come and have your babies and Gentiles. That's not what we're doing, right? I mean, we get that. We understand. But they didn't. He goes on. They also said that, Christian, that the Christian kiss of love, which we don't do anymore, just so you know, the Christian kiss of love, which supposedly was used at their love feast, was really a demonstration of this unbridled lust and orgy that took place called the Lord's Supper. We're not doing any of that today either. But this is how they were perceived, because they were misunderstood. I think from, it's easy to gather that Christians weren't 
weren't on the top of the list of, 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 of acceptable people. And eventually, if it hadn't already begun, and I, I, when I first studied this letter years ago, I thought that the suffering that Peter spoke of was in result to Nero and his, and his persecution of Christians. But I've since begun to believe that uh, in studying the language that he uses, and he's talking about verbal insults, and he's talking about reviling and things like that, he's not talking about physical persecution. These Christians are simply suffering social persecution. But there is going to come a very difficult day for them. See, Nero is going to, uh, he's going to blame the great fire of Rome on them. He's going to accuse them, and he's going to begin to persecute them horrifically. <clears throat> but I think based on Peter's comments, that hadn't begun to happen yet, but they would suffer greatly. But instead of drawing back, I mean, this is, this is what we would advise people to do. This is what happens in our churches today, is that instead of drawing back, instead of standing for holiness, instead of affirming the truth of Scripture, the, 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 we, would be, we, we would assume that, oh, we, we, need, we, need to, we, need to, we need to be friendly. We need to put on a PR campaign that makes us acceptable and that, that says, oh, we, we don't talk about sin in this church. Love wins in this church. You get the reference. Yeah, we're open and affirming in this church. We're open and affirming of the truth of God that calls us all to a Savior because we are in need of Him. That's what Peter's calling us to. So instead of backing down, instead of drawing back, instead of ceasing to live like Jesus, Peter instructs us not to change the way that we are believing or the way that we are acting, but to change the way that we are viewing suffering. In light of the gospel, he's calling us to see suffering in a whole new gospel-saturated light. And I think we can draw out four principles, probably more, but you guys wouldn't listen to me that long, so I'm drawing out four principles about this new view, this new perspective, that this trait of a gospel culture of suffering. First, Expect to suffer. For the sake of the gospel, expect to suffer. Well, I don't even like that. But that's how he starts. Beloved, I mean, I, okay, I like that. Man, Peter feels really good about me. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial. I don't, that, that language sounds pretty, that's difficulty, right? Fiery trial, painful trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. This isn't strange. You should expect it. You, this is the norm. This is, this is to be expected if you are going to live for Christ. We are to expect this. This is, this is, the, this is the reality of living in Christ. And this flies in the face of so much gospel or, or so much false gospel prosperity gospel that flies right in the face of it. And that gospel, whether we intensely allow it to or not, it pervades us. It's all around us. And unfortunately, it begins to cause us to think that in some way, if things aren't going good, then God must have forgot about me or He doesn't love me. No, we've got to look at it different. We can't look at our suffering and assume that we've been forgotten. We can't look at our, God, at our suffering and think that in some way, I just don't believe enough. 
Because if you believe enough, then everything's going to be good. If you do the right things and you please God, then he's going to give you uh, health and wealth, and, and you're going to have this great kingdom on earth. That is a lie. It's a lie from the devil. Don't be deceived by the pursuit of comfort and prosperity. Expect suffering. If you are going to live for Christ, if you are going to put on the mind of Christ, if you are going to prioritize the will of God like Christ, then be prepared. Expect to suffer along with Christ. This is, this is not just Peter's teaching. I mean, the, the whole breadth of the, the, the Scripture teaches this. But maybe, just maybe, in, in Peter's mind was those, some of those final words that he heard from, from Jesus the night before Jesus was hung on the cross. Jesus, with his apostles, preparing, him for the, preparing them for the time that he is about to endure. He, he's with them, and he teaches them about that, that he's divine, and, 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 and they're the branches. And, and, he, and he shows them through this imagery of the vineyard, of how desperately they need him, and how desperately we need him. And then he looks at them, and he tells them, he's like, look. He says this in John 15, 18 and 19. If the world hates you, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Be prepared for Jesus is preparing his apostles in that moment. He knew it was coming. And Peter, just, the, just hours later, didn't suffer for Christ, but denied him and suffered that way instead. Suffered great grief. So should we be surprised at now Peter, the apostle who suffered and found hope again in Christ, is now calling us a people of hope to expect to suffer. This isn't how we evangelize, is it? I mean, when you're talking to people about Jesus, it's not like you're saying, hey, by the way, you're going to suffer. No, we, we tell them all the good things. Like, he's going to fix all your problems. We just don't put the one day in there. He's going to make everything right in your life one day. Hey, you, you're you're going to have peace, and you're going to have hope, and you're going to have joy, and, and all your troubles are going to be solved. One day. That's not the marketing campaign that we, we want. We don't, I don't want to go on that marketing campaign. In fact, preachers get labeled as fire and brimstone if, if, they, if they get too heavy on the suffering and the, and the threat that's coming as a result of the wrath of God. It's no wonder the church has, has changed the way we talk about this. Because we're trying to sell Jesus as a product. Rather than let Jesus stand for himself and people come and fall at him as a sinful people in need of a Savior. Christian, hear me. Do not be deceived by the lure of prosperity and comfort. That is coming. And there will be times that we get to experience the beauty 
and the majesty and the glory of our God even now. We just read a passage from Philippians that the peace that passes understandings will guard your heart and mind. But the peace that passes understanding, do you know why it's said that way? Because in spite of the circumstances you're living in, in spite of the test of faith that's come, he talks about it in Philippians chapter 1, in spite of the difficulty you face, you have peace. And people look at you and it's like, how do you have peace? People hate you, they revile you, they insult you. How can you be at peace? How can you have joy? Peter says, expect suffering. In fact, if you take Peter's meaning to its logical extension and really blow it out the way I think he intends it, I think he's saying if you aren't experiencing some painful trial, if you haven't experienced some painful trial, or you don't eventually experience some painful trial, you should be less concerned or less feeling lucky and more concerned that you're not living by faith. This is the norm for Christians. This is expected for Christians. This is what we're called to. I know. I, I know. I get it. I get it. I understand. We live, we live in a country where we get to, we get to worship publicly, and, and we can come, and we have religious liberty, and, and nobody's persecuting us. We're not getting our heads chopped off on the side of a beach or, or executed for our faith. No, we're not getting in prison like they do in China. We're not dealing with persecution like that. I, I get it. But I dare you. I triple dog dare you to go out of this building. In fact, I triple dog dare you right here in the midst of this building to begin to live, to, to, to live so fully in your faith in Christ that everybody would accuse you of being a Bible thumper and a holy roller. I dare you. And then come and tell me you've not sensed persecution. That you've not, sent, that you've not found insult and rejection and loss of relationship in the world. The sad truth is you're going to find that from religious people who are less about the gospel and more about their law. And you're going to find it from sinful people who are less about learning and believing and coming to the gospel and more about their sin. We get to suffer in stereo. Sell that one. And what would happen today if a teacher decided to go into their classroom and throw away the evolutionary theory and began to teach only creationism. What would happen? Ask the teachers that are in this room and in this building and a part of this church if they have the freedom to do that. Why is it that we have had so many cases in recent years, even of volunteer-led prayers at graduations? Why is that such a big thing in the news? Why is it that a, a college student at MSU was ridiculed and told to go kill herself because she let her views of the Soji deal that happened in Springfield just recently be known? Yeah, we, we don't get persecuted physically, but we suffer a passive, aggressive persecution. And they may accept you for a little while living like Jesus and loving like Jesus, but as soon as the goodness leads to the good that speaks truth, you can, you can expect that you will suffer. As soon as they're done with you and they've gotten from you what they want. I, this just happened to me. Just, I mean, just a few minutes ago. 
I was walked into the nursery, and Eli, I love Eli. He's such a cute little boy. And I want to hold Eli, and I want to hug on Levi. I want to love him. Sorry, I didn't ask your permission for this, but it's a good story. He, he's walking now, and I was so amazed by that. I was like, oh, man, you're walking. That's awesome. And so he walked to me, and I, I had stepped into the nursery enough to, to, to close the door behind me. And he walks over to me, and it, when he comes and cleans with his mom, he won't have anything to do with me. In fact, he just soon cries. Look at me. In fact, sometimes looking at me causes him to cry. I have that effect on children sometimes. So, so he comes to me, and I'm like, this is awesome. This feels so good. I pick him up, and, and I go to hug him. You know, he's just, he's just big brown eyes. He's just so cute. You know, you just want to love on him. And then he points at the door. He was done with me. Totally done. He wanted one thing from me. And if I wasn't going to give it to him, he didn't want me. And so he wanted down. That's the way the world treats Christians. As long as you have something good for them that serves their purpose, they're happy to have you. But you speak the good news of the gospel and the confrontation of their sin begins to occur, you can be certain. They don't want you anymore. They don't want you anymore. Expect to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Rejoice. That's the second thing. He's like, rejoice for the sake of the gospel. Come on, Peter. Give me a break. Rejoice. I, I, I mean, okay, I'll expect it. I'll work it. I'll endure it. You know what I mean? I'll deal with it. But rejoice. Rejoice. That, that, again, it's, a, it's, it's totally in the face of, of, of every teaching we, we seem to lean on. So backwards to us to to rejoice in suffering. Our whole culture, I mean, our whole way of life is about pursuing comfort and joy. I mean, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that's written into us from the very beginning that we begin getting educated. Run after the things that are easy and nice and make you feel good. And Peter's saying, Rejoice when you suffer. What's he saying? Why? Insofar as you are suffering alongside Christ. As you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ, there is joy to come. There is joy to come. Listen, I, I, I don't want, I, as we deal with this, I don't, want, I don't want to make this all seem gloom and doom. I mean, there's reality, there's great things to come. And the Bible is full of verses that speak to us about joy. Psalms 37 through 4, 37 verse 4, one that is probably one of the most misused, misappropriated in this context. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. And we're all about giving the desires of our heart. And we forget the part about delighting ourselves in the Lord. Well, if I go to church every Sunday, if I show up and, and go to my community group, and I, I do the religious duty, then God's going to give me everything I want. See, that's how we use it. But that's so, mis that's just so out of context, so wrong. Psalm 1611, if, if you make known to me, or I'm sorry, you make known to me the path of life in your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand, are pleasures forevermore. I mean, that's a powerful, amazing verse. Yes, it's true. But where do you find the joy? Where are you, where are you finding your satisfaction? And where are you so filled up, filled up? At the very right hand of God in your intimate relationship with God. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
when we take that verse and we say, oh, that means I'm supposed to have a house that's got a bathroom with a seat that lifts itself. I'm supposed to have a house that has a five-car garage and four Mercedes and maybe one BMW. I, I don't know what you want. I don't know what you long for, but, but so many people take that and they twist it. Our flesh, our sinful nature, the passions that war against our soul cause us, they take us to this place where we begin to find our joy and our satisfaction in the material. And that's a, a, a drastic misunderstanding of these verses. I mean, put them in contrast to, to Romans 5, 2 and 3. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That sounds pretty good. Not only that, he says in verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And then he goes to show what our suffering does. Philippians 1, 29. For it has been granted to you. That's a gift, right? It's been graced upon you. It's been given to you. It has been granted to you. That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Did you know that your suffering that you're experiencing in this world is a gift from God? It's, it's his gift to you. Thanks, I think. James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers. And we might think he's going to follow that up when you get all the good stuff from God. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. See, at the heart of all of these passages, when you put them together, it is not the good that comes or the bad that comes that should bring us joy, but our relationship with God. Heaven will be heaven, not because we are materially blessed, but because we can see our Creator face to face. That we can sit at the feet of our Savior. We can hear His words. Our heart will be full of Him. And yes, He will bless us with many wonderful things. But our inheritance is not going to be the, the, the things of the world. Our inheritance is going to be Him. That's our hope. That's our joy. That's why we can rejoice when we take a new view of the things of this world. When we take a new view of the sufferings that we endure, we can rejoice because we get to be with and like Christ. And the joy that we have now, even in sufferings, is just a sampling. How does he say it? He says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It's expected. Something we can rejoice in. And the third thing, he says, endure suffering for the sake of the gospel as a blessing. A blessing. Like a good thing from God. Like, you know, Paul said, a gift, a, something he granted you. How in the world can suffering be a blessing? How can this be? Well, he says it right there in the verse. There's one primary way that's visible easily. He says, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Suffering for the sake of the gospel is an indication that you are citizens of God's kingdom and don't belong in the world anymore. The world hates you, Jesus said, because I chose you out of it. If you belong to them, they would love you, but, but I chose you out and so they hate you. 
You belong to me. It's an indication. It's not to say that, that you can suffer enough to get into heaven. It's not like we can, okay, well, that means to really be a good Christian, that's law. I, I can go out and I can start suffering enough and I can just make up ways to suffer. I can, I can do like they did in the, in, in the early church and I can begin to whip myself on the back and make myself suffer and I can wrap things around my leg that begin to cut into me and cause me to bleed and I can go out and get myself on a pinnacle where no one else is there and I can suffer. That's not what He's calling us to. That's not what He's saying. So we, we, we know. We know when we suffer for the sake of the gospel, that that is not natural. When we, when we suffer not to save our own skin, or we suffer not to impress the people of this world, but to preach the gospel, to, to walk and live and obey Christ, to, to take on his mind, when we suffer in that way, it is not in, in any way a way to get into heaven. It is an indication that heaven has gotten into us. Jesus, we know Jesus was all in on the gospel. We know it. How do we know it? Because he suffered and died for it. You know what you believe and you know what means something to you when you're willing to suffer for it. I mean, just consider, we, we work extra hours. We put up with all kind of junk at work from our boss just so we can get a promotion or more money. We do it all the time. We'll exercise in the gym and eat crazy diets that, that, like you're having to watch everybody else eat and you're hungry. Just so we can put ourselves in a smaller pair of pants. And if you're dieting, I'm not trying to, I'm just saying. We'll put up with all kinds of ridicule and even lose friends over a cause we believe in. In recent months, I've known people that have lost friends because of the, their view of racism and the, and the issues that have gone on with, with how we have systemically oppressed black people, even though racism is dead. It's not dead. But the truth is, racism's on both sides. And the reality is, people have lost friends over their view of same-sex marriage, been ridiculed and teased and but when we believe in that cause, when we believe, we'll put up with it. You know, you know that heaven is changing you, that God has made his way to you when you are willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. It's an indication of his work in you. The second, I think, is not quite as clear, but I think it's completely evident there. We just have to, we have to look at it a little closer. Is that it's a blessing, that, that suffering is a blessing because it refines our faith. Now go back up to verse 12 where he says, Beloved, do not be surprised by, at, at the fiery trial. Fiery trial. I mean, it sounds painful. It sounds difficult. He's obviously talking about persecution and suffering. It's obvious. But the word he chose there, it, it's, it's the word that's used to talk about refining metal. In fact, Thayer's Greek Dictionary defines it this way, the burning by which metals are roasted and reduced. In your suffering, the Father, the good, gracious, loving Father, is roasting and reducing your flesh that your faith may shine forth. That's not pleasant. 
But it's not only in this place that he refers to it. First Peter 1, 6 through 7 is and he started his letter this way. I'll just read it to you. In this you rejoice. In what do I rejoice? The, the gospel is, is, is where he was talking about. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. Your faith is more precious than gold. Let me read it without the aside. So that the genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In your suffering, our good and gracious and glorious and great God is removing the impurities that worship other things other than him. It's, it's removing those things that rejoice in the world more than him. It's removing the impurities that long and expect a life of ease and comfort in this world instead of following him. It's removing the impurities that would worship other things rather than him. He is refining your faith. And so when we come to suffering... We can come at it a couple of different ways. I mean, we can, we can blame God. We can get angry at God. I've done it. I've been there. I ran from him for like three years. I flipped him off and said, I'm done with you if this is what you're about. We can blame him. I don't deserve this. Look at what I've done for you. Look at my life. We can bow up at him all we want. And you know what? This is a longer, slower, refining process. But he's, if you're his, he's going to bring you to this place where your faith is refined. But there's a better way we can turn in faith to him and press more deeply into him and recognize that we desperately need him. The results of our circumstances, the, the difficulties we face, the, the, the things going the way they have, the things that we don't think we deserve, we can look at him and say, I need you, my good, gracious, glorious, and great heavenly father. And that will refine you, that you will only worship him. Now there's a caution. We're getting long. I'm going to push through this pretty fast, but there's a caution. Know why you're suffering. He, he gives us these first three points. He gives us these first three perspectives, and he says, look, don't be somebody that suffers for murder, uh, thieving, or evil doing, or meddling. Now the first three, it's like, oh, well, the, those kind of people, they suffer, they get what they deserve. Meddling? Like busybody, kind of nosy, got to know what's going on, getting involved in everybody's business. I, they, do they even belong on the same list? Well, yes, they do. I think Peter's point is that we are not to, to be a people who suffer for sin. He, he's calling us to know why we're suffering. You know, sometimes we suffer for sinning, uh, sins of commission, like we do things wrong against one another, against God, and, and, and the fallout is suffering for us and suffering for others. Sometimes people sin against us and it causes us suffering. Sometimes we sin, uh, the sins of omission, like we, things we don't do. I don't love the brotherhood. I don't, I, I, I don't pray. I don't, um, I don't serve you. I don't, I, I don't offer hospitality to you. That's going to cause suffering in your life. It's going to cause suffering in my life. I'm not going to know the fullness and joy of, of all that God has for me. Peter's telling us not to suffer for sin. He's telling us to suffer and expect it, rejoice it, kind of a blessing for doing good, for living right. So know why you're suffering. All suffering can be used, and, and, and God will take it, and he will, 
He will use it in your life. Purposefully look to live for him and endure the suffering that comes as a result. That's what he's saying. But finally, his fourth perspective I think he gives us, just real quick, anticipate the end of your suffering. When you suffer for the gospel's sake, for the sake of the gospel, you can anticipate the end of your suffering. Christian, your suffering. Let me say it like this. This is the point that's going to be on the screen. Christian, this is as close to God's wrath as you will ever come. Your suffering will end. This is as close to it as you ever get. Romans 1 tells us that his wrath is being revealed against the world because of the sins of mankind. This is as close to experiencing his wrath as we will ever be. Your suffering will end. Anticipate that day. Judgment is coming. And even if you're just scarcely saved, you will be saved. Take hope in that. Take heart in that. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I can't say the same thing to you. For the non-Christian, when you hear me say that for the Christian, this is as close to God's wrath as we ever come, that's not true for you. For the non-Christian, this is as far from God's wrath as you will ever be. If you have not trusted in Christ, where our suffering ends, yours truly begins. Hear me. Not trying to beat you up or tear you down, but to tell you that you need to trust in Jesus and Him alone. I don't care if you've been sitting in churches all of your life. If you are depending on your religion to get you there, it will not work if you have never trusted the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you have looked at Christians as if they are silly and stupid for the things they believe, now is the time to be one of us silly, stupid people. Believe in Jesus. Trust Him. Because in the end, your suffering begins. Let's pray. Father, I pray and ask that you speak, that your spirit works, and that you reshape our perspective on suffering, that it is actually something to rejoice over, something to expect, something to consider a blessing. What a compliment. <laughs> Father, what a compliment. The world, to, to call us one of yours, to insult us as if that's an insult. What a compliment. God, shape us and mold us and, and give us eyes to see the end of suffering. That we might hope that we might trust our faithful creator, that we would trust our souls to your power and your provision and your protection. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.